0: You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. My name is Adam McKeldry. So glad for you guys to be here. I get the privilege of serving here on staff as the associate pastor, and I'm pretty excited about what God has in store for us today. As we continue our series, Someone Else's Shoes. If you missed the last couple of weeks, if you missed the pair of shoes that we've been able to walk in the last few weeks, It's all right. You can jump onto our website, lifeforotp.com, go to the sermons tab, and you'll be able to catch the last couple weeks and catch up. they were really good. Speaking of websites, around Christmas time, I got uh, one of those marketing emails from a website many of you probably heard of. You guys know Ancestry.com? You guys ever go down that dark rabbit hole? (laughs) Well, I did. I got sucked right into that thing. And I was just intending to you know, start a little family tree and just see a couple of generations back what was going on if I see what I could find out, but i got I got sucked in every time I saw that little thing I was like here 's a hint you might have more uh, ancestors here that we've found, and so i 'd go to the next one and go to the next one and go to the next one and I just got sucked right in. What started out as a hobby has become an obsession uh, <clears throat> and I secretly you know i 'm hoping that i 'm going to find. Some sort of famous or cool person in my past. But I know a lot of us that have gone down this, well, not a lot of us, some of us have found some, some deep family secrets along the way, things that have changed our perspective on our, on our family, and I am no, no stranger to that. You see, for me, I have long held fervently that the McKeldry surname was Scottish, <sighs> I was wrong. The McKeldries do not hail from the highlands of Scotland. Nay. <laughs> we are from Northern Ireland. Which was a big bummer for me. Because being from Scotland was my number one excuse to not have to wear green on St. Paddy's Day. And now that's completely gone. But... You know, you guys have done this, some of you have done this before. It's a hobby, it's fun, it's a good time most of the time for us to spend some time digging into our genealogy, see where we came from, but that's about where it stops. Genealogies in the ancient culture were so much more. They gave you a tie to your history, to your culture, to who you were and where you came from. They would give you an idea of connections to uh, royal priesthoods and and royal uh, bloodlines. Sometimes they would indicate exactly who you were going to be able to be in your life. They were super crucial to the ancient people. But because they are mostly just a hobby for us is probably the reason why when we come across the many that are in our text, we just skim right past those things. First chapter of Matthew, no thank you. All the book of Numbers, going to pass. But I want to spend some time today talking about somebody that, falls, that, comes into one, uh, that shows up in one of these genealogies, one of the most important genealogies that we will see throughout the entire text. So if you have your Bibles with, me, with you today, come with me. Over to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. And in this genealogy, we are going to see the pair of shoes that we will be walking in later today, for the rest of the day. So this is what God's Word says. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. There's a ton of stuff packed into these first six verses of Jesus' genealogy. And Matthew is making some very key connections in here. First of which is Jesus' connection to Abraham. Abraham is the one that that God promises hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus' time that his line is going to be a blessing to all nations. And so that promise is a part of Jesus. And he also connects Jesus' line to royal blood. And not just any royal blood, but the royal blood in Israel, King David. King David, who God had promised, I will raise up someone in your line that will sit on the throne and establish a kingdom that will reign for all time. And that is where Jesus comes from. That is, these six verses show us who Jesus is going to be by who he's connected to. In his past. But there's something really strange about this lineage. There's an inclusion of three individuals in just these six verses that you don't see very often in ancient genealogies. And those are three different women. And it's really strange, not just because they're women, but because of what their story is, where they came from, what they've been through we're going to dive into the story of the first woman that is included in this genealogy. The mother of Perez and Zerah, Tamar. Now Tamar's story has quite a level of dysfunction as you will see as we get into this. It's kind of like, it feels like it's straight out of a daytime talk show. There's lots of levels of weird and crazy that happen within her story. And it starts with where it's found in the text. Tamar's story is found in Genesis 38. And now the reason why this is weird is because the chapter before, in Genesis 37, we get introduced to Jacob's family. And we get introduced to his sons. In particular, we start the story of Joseph. One of his 12 sons, and not just one of. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And that favoritism that Jacob has towards Joseph eventually leads to his brother's jealousy, his brother's anger towards Joseph, which leads to them making a decision to try to kill him. They want to kill him because of his favoritism. But then they eventually say, ah, we'll just throw him in a pit. Well, let's just, we're just going to sell him into slavery and fake his death instead. That's chapter 37. On the other side of Tamar's story, Joseph's story continues, where he's in slavery in Egypt in the household of a man named Potiphar. And then we have the rest of Joseph's story for the, rec- the rest of the book of Genesis. But right there at the very beginning of his story, we have this, this chapter... That includes Tamar's story. just feels really out of place. But I think by the end of today, you might see that it actually is perfectly placed. You see, chapter 38 starts out with, with Judah, one of the 12 brothers in the, the chapter before. Actually, not just one of. This guy was the ringleader for the debacle that happened with Joseph. So uh, Judah decides to leave his family, which is weird, to leave your family. But he leaves his family and goes to the land of Canaan to live with a buddy down there. And while he's there, he finds a Canaanite woman, a nice lady. They decide to get married and have kids. And they have three sons, a guy named Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And once his oldest, Ur, gets old enough, becomes of age to marry, he finds him a wife and enter in Tamar. So he finds Tamar and he marries her to his son, Ur. And we don't know a lot about Tamar up to this point. This is the first time she's dropped into the text. The only thing we really know about her is that her name means palm tree. I don't know if that means she was... A bean pole, like really tall. I'm not sure what that means, but she is maybe that's who she was. So she's married to Ur. Now, Ur was not a good guy. Verse 7 in chapter 38 tells us that Ur was a wicked man. He was so wicked that God struck him dead. And now Tamar is a widow, she has no husband. She has no kids. She has no choice. What does she do now? Well, Judah, the man who is over the whole family, steps in and says, All right, Onan, next brother in line, you're going to marry Tamar and do your brother-in-law duty and give her a son for your dead brother. And that's when we all stop and think, excuse me, what? (laughs) What is going on here? Judah is forcing his daughter-in-law Tamar to marry his other son? To have a kid, but for the dead brother? Like, what in the world is happening? For us, in our time, in our place, in our culture, this is completely foreign. We have no idea. We don't understand this. But if we step back and think about the time and place and culture that we are reading about, this makes total sense. You see, in ancient cultures, they had this thing called Leverite marriage. And what happens here, it's not the same across the board for all the ancient cultures that that observe this, there's little nuances between the different ones. But the principle really is the same. When a, when a boy, when a son, a man, is married and he dies before he's able to have children to carry on his name, to inherit his property, his, of the, you know, his share of the family's property, the next step is to give that widow to the next brother in line. And it becomes that brother's responsibility to give a child to to the widow that will not be his own. It will not be seen as his son. It's going to be the son of the dead brother. So that that son can carry on the name of the brother that had died. In some circumstances, in some cultures, like if that didn't work out, if the, the brother-in-law wasn't able to do it, if he was already married, or there were no brother-in-laws, sometimes the father-in-law would be the one to step in and act as the leverite. And I know how misogynistic this all sounds. And on some levels, it certainly is. But we have to remember... During this time in history, women really had no other right, no other role in their life other than to bear children. It was their family's responsibility to take care of them. That was the only way that they had stability in their lives as if they had a husband or children that would be able to provide for them and care for them and, and give them the home that they needed. And so while, you know, the heart of Leverite marriage was more focused on the dead husband, it actually provided a way for the widow to have some stability and to be cared for in her life. And so that's what's going on here. As we jump back into Tamar's story, Judah is just doing what he's supposed to do to make sure that his son's line is carried on and his daughter-in-law is cared for. And so Onan, the middle brother, probably has some issues as most middle siblings do, as I do. Maybe that's why he did what he did. He took her in as, a spouse, as his wife. But he knew. He knew that the child that he had with Tamar was not going to be his own. And so instead of doing his duty, instead of fulfilling his role, he says, I'm not doing that. I am not giving her a child. But that did not keep him from taking her in his house and using her for his own pleasure and his own benefit. And God looked at that And said, That is wicked. (coughs) And he strikes him dead too. And now Tamar is twice widowed, still childless, with only one option left the youngest son. But Judah does not offer Tamar the youngest son, not initially. No, instead he starts, decides to do something diabolical. He tells her, hey, Sheila's is too young. He can't marry you yet. So I want you to go to your dad's house and live as a widow and wait. Wait till he's old enough and, and I will give you to him as a wife. But even as he says that to her, he knows he never intends to do that. He never intends to follow through on his word. Because he sees Tamar as cursed, a pariah. She is the reason that her two sons are dead. So he never intends to give his youngest to her. So Tamar has to leave the family that's supposed to be taking care of her. The one that she has grown to be loyal to. The one that she is still bound to through the promise of marriage to the youngest son. Because Judah doesn't release her. So she has to go back to her father's house to a family that has zero obligation of taking care of her. All of that falls on Judah's family. But she goes back to her dad's, puts on her widow's clothes, and waits, hoping that someday Judah will come through on his vow to her. After time passes, Judah's wife passes away. And after he's done mourning through that process, he hears about a sheep shearing that's going on nearby. And these sheep shearings, I guess they kind of turned into a little bit like frat parties. Like they were a time that guys would, they would go up there, they'd shear their sheep, they're making lots of money, that's burning holes in their pockets, they're looking for ways to spend this money that they just made. So he's, getting plan- he's making plans to go up there with his buddy. In the meantime, someone goes to Tamar, who's still at her dad's house. Still being true to the vow that she had made to Judah's family. Living as a widow, waiting to be given as a bride to the youngest son. And someone goes to her and says, hey, your, your father-in-law is going up over nearby to the sheep shearing. And in the midst of all this, Tamar somehow sees that Shelah has grown up and he's old enough To be given in marriage. But here she still sits. A widow. Unmarried, without kids, at her dad's house. Even though she'd been true to the vow. True to her promise. True to her word. Her role in what was going on. But Judah was not. So she decides to take things into her own hands. She takes off her widow's clothes, she puts on a nice dress, puts a veil on, and heads out, and heads over to the road that she knows Judah's going to have to go by, and sits by the gate of a city that she knows that he will go into. And that's where I want us to jump into Genesis 38 and read what happens when Judah sees his daughter-in-law Tamar. This is verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I will send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. This is like him handing over his passport, his social security card, and his Amex black. Like he is giving her the keys to the kingdom here. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Okay. What in the Jerry Springer show is going on here? (laughs) Like, this is crazy. This is crazy. It's so crazy, it makes me, it makes me wonder and it, it, it makes me question, why on earth would God include this woman in Jesus' genealogy? Why would God tie Jesus to a woman who uses deception and prostitution to get her way? Why? Why? As her story continues, Judah sends his buddy back to the, the town with the goat for, the, for services rendered. But his buddy can't find her. And he starts asking all over town, hey, where is that cult prostitute that hangs down by the, the gate? And they're like, there is no cult prostitute here. I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, oh, Goes back to Judah and says, hey, there's, there's nobody there. Nobody's heard of her. He's like, okay, whatever. Just forget it. We did what we were supposed to do. I tried to pay her. We're just going to move on. And so by doing that, he is choosing to not pursue recovering those things that he had given to her as pledge, those things that identified who he was, that represented who he was. As we pick up reading in verse 24, it says about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and burn her to death. As she's being brought out, she sends a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she says. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son Shelah. This is, I think, where we see why Tamar is included in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar had the proverbial smoking gun in her hands. She had the way to clear her name of those damning accusations that these people were making about her she could have brought great shame upon Judah. The guy who decided to abandon his responsibility and take care of her. The guy that led her into brokenness in her life. The instigator of her injustice. All she had to do was walk out into the street and hold up the cord and the, and the staff and say, look, Judah, you are the one. You are the father of these children. Take responsibility. I'm not guilty here. And justice would have been served. But that's not what she does. Instead, she quietly sends a message to him. Putting her future once again into the hands of Judah. Look at these things. The one who owns these things is the father of the children that grow within me. See if you recognize them. And I wonder if at that moment Judah remembered standing before his dad with a bloody coat that belonged to Joseph and said the same exact thing. See if you recognize who this belongs to. And I wonder if Judah was able to, at that moment, realize this was God intervening in his life through his daughter-in-law, Tamar, giving him the opportunity to do what was right. And so when he decides to accept responsibility of what he had done, and name himself the father of the children, he sets himself on a path of redemption. And not just himself, but he also brings the beginning of redemption for Tamar and the brokenness that he had given uh, brought her into in her life. But this is only possible because of what Tamar did. Because Tamar decided to create room for Judah to have the opportunity to make it right. It seems like she was more interested in his redemption than her justice. I believe that is a reflection of what God's heart is for us we have all been through seasons of brokenness brokenness in our lives. Whether that's because of decisions that we have made on our own or because other people have brought us into that position or maybe we've brought other people into that season of brokenness. Regardless of what brought us there, It's in those situations that I think God wants us to be like Tamar. And he wants us to make room. He wants us to make room and be more interested in God's redemption taking root in our lives and other people's lives than for us to get what we think we deserve. Which I know, trust me I know, is way easier said than done. but God is in the business of redemption. And his business is interested in not leaving you where you are. God's redemption leads us from brokenness into a whole, into a new wholeness. God's redemption leads you from brokenness to a new wholeness. There is this really cool uh, form of Japanese art called kintsugi. Some of you may have heard this before. But kintsugi is this art where they take broken pottery and broken ceramics, and it's the art of putting those things back together. But it is far more than just grabbing a, a tube of super glue and piecing the thing back together so it looks like it's never been broke before. Kintsugi is a process that is very intentional. Very specific. It is painstakingly long process of taking something that was broken and making it into something that is whole. what happens is the artist will take those broken pieces. He'll make sure that he has all the pieces first. Clean up all the edges, polish them up, map it out, which piece goes to which piece. And then he'll take an adhesive that he has created and start to to paint it onto the edges and slowly, one by one, put these pieces together. And then the next step is He will take this lacquer, and in this lacquer, which is clear on its own, he starts to put in real gold flakes and mixes it in there and gives it this gold hue, and then he starts to paint every crack in that piece of pottery, in that ceramic, with this gold lacquer. And by doing this, by using this precious metal of gold to paint the cracks, he accentuates the brokenness. He does not try to hide it or blend it in, which is the point of this whole art form. It's to say, we accept the brokenness. We accept the imperfections that happened. The process creates something new, but still it's the same thing, but it's something so much more beautiful. And it's beautiful because of its brokenness, not in spite of it. And that's what God started that day with Tamar putting her back together into something more beautiful than before. Making her a part of a lineage that is going to bring about King David and eventually Jesus Christ himself. Making her a part of God's grander story of redemption and restoration. And even in the midst of all of our crazy decisions and actions, Joseph also gets to experience God's redemption. Joseph also gets to be put into that process of being transformed into a new wholeness. The next time we see him in the text, he's back with his family, making better decisions. It seems like he's learned from his mistakes. Tamar's story is only one of the many that we get to experience in the text where we get to see God's redemption lead people from brokenness into a new wholeness. They're all part of the bigger story, the story that culminates with the story of Jesus. Tamar's direct descendant. And his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead makes room for us, gives us an opportunity to walk in redemption, gives us an opportunity to experience God's redemption, gives us an opportunity to walk the path of restoration, to become a whole new creation, I guess the question is, though, will we recognize the opportunity and accept it and allow God to fashion us into something new? Or are we just going to sit in the brokenness that we're in? Each week we get a chance to commemorate and celebrate that sacrifice that created space for us. To be able to choose to accept God's redemption, his redemption plan for each and every one of us by taking communion together. If you're new with us here today, we get to do this every week. You don't have to be a partner at real life, you don't have to be a regular tender. If you've made that decision, to follow Jesus Christ, to make room for him in your life, we would love for you to celebrate with us. We have ushers in the aisles. If you raise your hands, if you didn't grab one on your way in, they can bring one to you. But as you guys are getting your stuff ready, I want to read to you a psalm that I think God brought to my my mind this week for us about his redemption. This is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel. Real life. Church. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full Redemption. He himself will redeem us from all our sins. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, he made room by taking the bread and breaking it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. Let's remember together. And after the meal, he took the cup. said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Let us remember the new covenant he has started with this. Lord God, we come before you and thank you so much, Lord, for making room for us to make a decision. For giving us opportunities, Lord, to respond to you. To get back on the path Of redemption, Lord, thank you that you do not leave us in our brokenness. That your desire is to make us into something new, something more beautiful than we were before. And not hide our brokenness, Lord, but put it on display because it is a testament of what you have done in our lives, of what you have brought us through. So, Lord, give us the boldness to share with those around us our brokenness and what you have done in us, the healing that you have done in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.